I've never been one to celebrate milestones or fear the movement of time. My birthdays have meant very little, and a New Year's even less. That is until I got on in time, and getting older became becoming older. Now this isn't a message of depression or desperation. If anything, it's one of reflection. I now take the time to travel back on my past and cherish where I am today. I still have a burning desire to do it. If anything, appreciating these moments has only fueled my ambitions for many more. But I know there's an impending collision between my dreams and time, and I hope I have decades to go, as I have so much to be done. I have grandchildren to watch grow older, daughters to see become leaders, and a life of adventure with my wife. I have friendships to renew, new ones to forge, and more of the work I love, as it involves learning, creating, and sharing. And I want to fight this relentless storm of negativity by opening my mind and hope others to positivity and possibility. Today's show was taped in front of a live audience. RBC Royal Trust invited me to interview the one and only David Chilton, the author of The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns. You know, a bestseller in Canada sells a few thousand. He sold over five million books. And together, David and I traveled back on his path from a successful financial advisor to a world-renowned author, speaker, venture capitalist, and one of the most popular dragons to ever roam the den. It's a great episode with the bonus of David Chilton offering some excellent advice on managing your financial affairs and investing for your future. One thought that David had that really resonated with me as I'm writing this opening about the passage of life was to make sure that I had a will, one that stood the test of time and that I never use a friend to be my executor. Well, you'll find more about that later on. But now it's time for my interview with David Chilton. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So to preface David Shelton, I got to tell you that I'm a bit of a book junkie. My wife would describe my end table as a Jenga puzzle that's just ready to fall. (laughs) I love everything. I mean, I have mystery novels, historical autobiographies. But I seem to buy a lot of business books. And I was kind of thinking about this and figuring that I must have bought in my life 5,000 business books. But I probably only have read cover to cover maybe five. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Good to Great, Who've Moved My Cheese. But one of them that I read not just once but several times was The Wealthy Barber. It, it, was, it was this complex world of financial planning that he compressed into such simple thoughts. So I, Dave and I got together a little while ago to just chat a little bit to get to know each other. And I said, I'm not going to introduce you the way your speaker's agent does, because it's as boring as hell. <laughs> I want to talk about David Chilton, the guy I met. First of all, I met him with his daughter. His love for his daughter is so incredible that I think any father and daughter would love this relationship. He's a great guy. He has incredible principles and integrity. He really wants to talk about positivity and the nice things in this world. So I hope the first of many applauses tonight for this man. Please welcome Dave Chilton. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'll tell you a very quick story about the. You're taking house. over my interview I already. Am right away. Right. And <laughs> about 1990 or so, I, I worked out of my house, and I got a call, and I picked it up, and I uh, said, "Hi, Dave Chilton speaking." And the guy on the other end of the line said, "This is Stephen Covey." And I laughed because I didn't think it was really Stephen Covey. He said, "No, this is truly Stephen Covey." from the seven habits of highly effective people. And I was stunned, and I love the book, like you. And I said, I'm curious why you're calling. 
And he said, my book is out in 29 countries right now. And it's number one in 28 of them. Only in Canada. It's not. And I wanted to call and find out, who the hell are you? <laughs> and, uh, and so he was very charming. I explained the whole wealthy barber story to him. I ended up meeting him a few years later. But I'll never, I'll never forget that call. I thought it was very classy of him to do that. So let's take it back to 1989. You wrote The Wealthy Barber. It took you 26 months to write. First of all, what motivated you in deciding that this young kid, financial planner, uh, obviously you've got a big brain for math, what motivated you to write a book? Well, you know, it's funny, I started out as a stockbroker when I was only 21. Like, I got involved in the industry at a very young age, and I would give my clients financial planning books, and they wouldn't read them. Even the good ones, they would say they're too boring, I thought there could be a good opportunity to make the subject less dry, make it more fun. And I actually started writing another book called The Ultimate Guide to Losing Money. And it was a look at all the mistakes people make and how to remedy them. And then one night, I was watching Cheers. And a lot of people don't know this, but that's where the Wealthy Barber idea came from. Okay, so it, talk to me about how a pub where everybody knows your name. There was no barber in that show. <laughs> there was no barber. Okay. In fact, it was called the Wealthy Bartender initially. <laughs> and the book was about a guy who went to the bar. And the bartender was dispensing the advice. But of course, I had alcohol involved. I had women uh, getting hit on by men. And it was all getting very complicated. Kind of lost the plot. Yeah, exactly. So I shifted it over to the barber shop. And this is a very funny story because it's 100% true. My father's brilliant. Like, he is a brilliant guy. But he has no business mind whatsoever. He is never right on the business and investment front. So I drove over and I described the entire wealthy barber idea to him. And I said, what do you think of that? And he said, I think it's kind of stupid. And I said, good. And I went home and started working <laughs> on it right away. And that was the launch of the book. And I thought it would sell a few thousand copies. And I never imagined it becoming what it did. So before we get into a success, because it's arguably the biggest selling book in Canadian history, probably is, but 26 months is a long time for a young person to commit to something. And I'm curious what advice you can offer people to stay the course, because I have to believe there's times you must have thought of quitting or you got writer's block or maybe even imposter syndrome that what am I doing? Who's going to read this stupid thing about a barber? But you stayed with it. And a lot of people don't stay with it. Why are you different? Yeah, you know, it was tough. There's no doubt about it. You're down in a dark basement. You're working on the book. I wrote everything by hand. Even for book two, I wrote on the same card table and wrote it all by hand. Your my editor sister, must have loved you. My sister was the editor. She was an editor for a living. I didn't just yank her in because she was cheap. She wasn't cheap. You know what she said to me? She said, well, you don't have any money. I'm not going to work for you. And I said, I'll pay you 10% of the book's profits. That was the worst deal ever cut in publishing history. It was horrible. I didn't, interestingly, I didn't battle imposter syndrome. And the reason I didn't is I didn't say anything new or exciting in The Wealthy Barber. I took the conventional wisdom and I repackaged it. In fact, about the only novel thought in the whole book was I didn't believe in budgeting. I thought it worked in theory, but not in practice. But for the most part, it was the tried and true principles that people weren't going to argue with. I just tried to make them more accessible. But there is a really compelling story about how I stayed the course because when the book was four chapters in of the 10 that I put together, I decided I better test it. Am I on the right track? And I sent out the four sample chapters to three big names in the industry, including Ellen Roseman. A lot of you know Ellen because she wrote for Globe Mail and Toronto Star for years and very, very fine writer, very good thinker. None of them liked the book. None of them. They all thought it was too odd. It wouldn't resonate with the public. And why was I doing it in a story format? I almost gave up. And then I decided to test the same four chapters on the 12 guys on my slow pitch team. 12 beer swigging, illiterate Canadians, <laughs> okay? And that was my target audience. 
And I learned a valuable lesson then. If you're going to test a product, test it on the target audience, not on the so-called experts, because they all love the book. But not only did I get the momentum back and the confidence from their reaction, but also they asked a lot of intelligent questions. I didn't really understand the one part. Or you know one thing you didn't address I've always wanted to know. And I thought, this is gold. If you read back and look at the old Wealthy Barber, the original, a lot of the questions now in the book came right from the guys on my slow pitch team. I figured if they wanted to know, most Canadians want to know, and I put them in there, and I think that's why the book got its flow and went do, from there. Do you think it takes a certain type of individual to take, especially from beer-guzzling, slow-pitched players, <laughs> criticism or suggestions? Is that Because that's not easy for some people. That they, you know, they want you to say, I love it, and keep going. Right. They don't really want feedback. You took feedback. Well, I'm not very talented. I've taken a lot of criticism in my life, truthfully, and you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. And, and at that point, I was taking such a big risk walking away from my career and, and doing this. In fact, I've, I've joked, I actually cashed out my RRSP to print The Wealthy Barber. The whole book says, never touch your RRSP. <laughs> so because I was taking on such a big risk, I knew I had to make it the best it could be. And I could see their feedback was going to add value and start incorporating it, tested with a lot more people, not just the slow pitch guys. And you could see the book starting to take form. And my father added a lot of value as copy editor. My sister did a lot of the flow editing. And by the time we had it, say, seven chapters in, I thought we had something. But by that, I meant I thought it would sell 10,000, maybe even 15,000 copies. I didn't think it was going to go on to sell millions. Your first year, I understand your best customer was your grandmother. She yes. brought 12 copies. Tell us what discount you gave her. I gave her no discount whatsoever. And I made her pay for shipping. And I'm not kidding. I sent it down. <laughs> when did you win over your dad? He went from that's a silly idea to feeling that there was something there. That He's was still be... a little shaky on this whole thing, <laughs> uh, to be honest. And once he was interviewed and the interviewer said to him, do you worry that David's going to be a one-hit wonder and my dad said that's one hit more than we thought he'd have so <laughs> you're listening to chatter that matters with tony chapman presented by rbc you know when i was very young first entering the financial world someone explained to me that all investments can be categorized in one of two ways put into one of two baskets and i've never forgotten the lesson in fact i've shared it many times when you go to invest you can either own or you can loan that's it all investments fall into one of those two camps. Buying a stock, own. You now own a piece of that company. Purchasing a government bond, loan. You've lent money to the government in return for an agreed upon interest rate. Today we have a special show for you. It's taped in front of a live audience. This isn't the first time I've done it, nor will it be the last, because there's something special about feeding off the audience's energy and doing everything in one take. David Chilton's my guest, he wrote The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns. They've sold over 5 million copies, and for a good reason. Money matters. Talk about year two now. We're 28,000 copies, very big numbers for Canada. But this thing suddenly catches fire. What, what happened that it went from being a bestseller to the biggest seller? You know, a Boxing Day in 1989, I got a call in the middle of the afternoon. And remember, it's Boxing Day. You're at home, you're working out of your office, you got pajamas on type thing. And the lady said, I have Brigadier General Desiver on the other line. And I don't get a lot of calls from generals. So I took the call and he said, got your book yesterday for Christmas, loved it. And I want to pick up copies for all the recruits at Baseboard. And I said, fantastic. He goes, what's your discount schedule? Well, I grabbed my schedule and I've got 1 to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 50. That's my discount schedule. And he says, we'll take 17,000. And I said, I, I, I have to call you back. Uh, 
And, and then we had another. Yes, big sir. And, and so I thought it was going to move, but interestingly, January, February should be a great time for book sales. Of course, RSP season wasn't too too good. And so at that point, I thought it was waning in popularity, and the potential wasn't going to be realized, even though the feedback was good. But I gave a speech out in Halifax in April of that year, my first out of Ontario speech. And I hadn't been doing a lot of interviews. I was really nervous. I don't get nervous. And I remember flying out there. I don't know how many of you have flown into Halifax, but the airport is very community located in New Brunswick. <laughs> and you take that long ride into town. And the more I was in the car, the more nervous I got. And the speech was at the old Hilton Hotel. And I pulled up out front and it said, Chilton at the Hilton. <laughs> how did they do that? And I was very concerned and they had, I think, 800 chairs set up or something crazy like that. And I said, there's not gonna be that many people. Let's start stacking the chairs and moving them out. And I think 2,200 people showed up that night. And you could see the momentum. The book's word of mouth was starting to take off. And then it just went ballistic and it, and it went on about a five-year run where it stayed number one for five years in a row. So what advice can you give to people when, because there's so many young people now want to be entrepreneurs or, or to take a seed of an idea and bring it to life. This thing starts coming to life. It must go from being the side of the desk to taking over your life. Right. So what advice can you give to people in terms of how to prioritize, how to sort of understand where to put your effort? Because if not, you're going to find yourself within those five years completely burnt out. I mean, I had two young kids and I wanted to be a great father because I grew up with tremendous parents. And I think I managed to do that, but something had to give. And I basically gave up socializing. And I've stayed you know, close to a lot of my friends, but I don't go out as much as most people. And that had to take a back seat because it was such a busy time. And you do have to make hay when the sun shines. It's a corny expression, but you only have these kinds of opportunities come to you once or twice in a lifetime. And so I did a tremendous number of interviews and I gave a lot of speeches. And the advantage to speaking is you have the direct contact with the audience. But the second big thing is you're always in all these cities. And so you're in the Vancouver's, the Calgary's, the Woodstock's, you're out in Truro, you're in all those places. And while you're there, you do interviews. And so that really kept the word of mouth going and kept the book flying off the shelves. And, you know, a lot of the banks ended up buying it and giving it out to their customers, et cetera. And again, it's one of those who knew type things. Yeah. Did you ever get tired of seeing your book in a bookstore? No. And what was the most exciting thing for you that period? Was it the accolades from generals calling you? Was it the orders or was it just your parents being so proud of their one hit wonder son, who's think, now selling five million books. I think seeing it number one in the bestseller list is something you definitely, the first time it happens is big, but I don't know why, this makes me sound very shallow, but I got a huge kick out of watching the news at night, CBC and CTV would be interviewing somebody in their office, and they'd almost always have the wealthy barber in the background of the bookshelf. And so while they were talking about major political world events, I'd be going, where's the wealthy barber <laughs> on the shelf? And I got a big kick out of that. And so, you know, different things. And the travel was a great opportunity. I mean, I've loved traveling. I think of all the things that have happened in my career, I've, I've said this before, I think the thing I most enjoyed was speaking in small towns. And I did a lot of that. And, and I think before I retire fully from speaking, I'll go on one more cross-country tour doing a lot of the smaller centers. That was a a great thrill. So it was all a lot of fun. I mean, the first TV interview you do on a national basis yeah. is fun. I mean, everything was good. One of my listeners, Michelle Dade, I asked, I went out on social media and said, give me the best question to ask David Shelton. And she said, do you live what you preach? You seem like such a modest guy. Have you ever come home with that 70 inch television set that you tell people, well, at least the second set not to buy? I mean, something ostentatious that's off brand. And, and if so, did you go, what have I been missing? Or you went, that's not me. No, I, I do live the, the, the life that I preach and it's interesting because I don't do it because I'm by nature thrifty. I don't even do it really to follow the wealthy barber. It's because I don't like stuff. 
And so I've given a lot of my money away over the years. I live in a very modest home. In fact, when Dragon's Den went to all the different Dragon's homes on one of the updates, they came to my house and the guy pulled in the laneway, the cameraman, and I'm in the truck with them. And he sees my house and he goes, oh, cool, you've got a guest house. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, that's, that, that, that's, that's my house. <laughs> it's only 1,300 square feet. So I've always lived a pretty quiet life on that front. And I don't have fancy boats or any of those types of yeah. things. And I really don't want them. So 2007, uh, this movie comes out, Wall Street, you know, greed is good, get wealthy quickly. Two years later, you go completely against it with the wealthy barber returns, really focused on this insatiable appetite we have for debt, and also really preaching the sense that you can't build wealth quickly, you build wealth slowly. Right. Contrary to what the world was, because the world, even though we were hit the 2008 recession, tell me about the motivation, because 20 years gap between writing those books, you must have had publishers screaming at Chilton, get me another book. You write, do cookbooks. We'll come to that maybe <laughs> later. But you waited 20 years. So was it laziness? Was it just this book's doing so well? Was it, I didn't have another thought in my head? Like, what took 20 years to come? Because you, you're, anybody else would dream of having a runaway train. The Beatles would throw another album in the same year. I think that the fact that I did have two kids and I toured so much, you know, made it difficult to write again. I knew I couldn't live up to the wealthy barber, to be mm. perfectly honest. I've always been upfront about that. That was a, a once in a lifetime type thing. Everything came together in just the right fashion. But really it was frustration more than anything that led to the second book. I was still helping people with their finances a lot, seeing a lot of the same mistakes, seeing the tremendous amount of debt that people were taking on and thought that I could make a difference, coming at it from a different perspective. And so instead of using the story format, I used short chapters and a lot of humor, but really tried to emphasize the philosophy of all of this and how the most important word probably is enough and that a lot of people have enough. You don't need to have the best and the brightest of everything, but you do have to do some proper savings for your retirement and so on and so forth. And I was thrilled the way the book went over. I mean, I, I thought the really book happy. was fabulous, but it, it was you. completely different because you moved away from these personas. Yeah. You know, I fell in love with the barber and the three characters. And when I started reading it, I kind of missed that. But then when I got into it, you did something that so many people struggle with. You made simplicity out of complexity. Yeah, I always thanks. call it head, heart, and hands. That I got it, I felt it, and I actually wanted to start applying some of those thinking. I thought it was better to come from my voice at that point. You know, I'd been seen out there on stage a lot and on TV, and it made sense. But also, I felt short chapters wrapped in humor, best way to resonate, especially with a, an audience that's no longer got, you know, good focus. I mean, we're seeing we're all battling attention deficit now. And of course, it's gotten worse over the years with streaming and TikTok and everything else. So shorter chapters might even be more important now. But I wasn't sure the book would go over as well as it did. I'm pretty excited about The Wealthy Barber Returns and the way that it sold and the way that it seemed to impact people. And I think we had 65 people in the test group for that book. So that means 65 people reading all of those chapters, giving their comments, me incorporating them in some instances, ignoring them in others, et cetera. So I think that really helped the process too. Did you have a go-to person? I mean, 65 is a big pool. Right. Your first go-to was your your softball players, but did you, do you have somebody in your life along the way that you've really trusted as your Merlin or Yoda that kind of you go to when you're really looking for advice? Is that the role your dad plays or is that is there somebody else? No, not really. I mean, my dad is, is great for life counsel and wisdom and, and joy. I mean, it sounds corny, but my father and my mother, for that matter, are two of the happiest people I've ever met, certainly two of the kindest and most giving. And I've Learned a lot from him on those fronts, but on business, I try to stay away from him at all costs, truthfully, and uh, don't ask him very much. No, I, I didn't overly heavily weight any one person in that group. There were certainly some people who were more insightful than others or who would say, I really like this. And can I tell you an anecdote that supports it? And in some minutes I go, Craig, that's better than the one I had. 
So I'd weave their story into the book and it would resonate even better. And so that really helped. But there was no one person that was a big difference maker. And it was fun. I actually enjoyed that whole process. But to your point, to start the interview, it takes a long time. The reason a lot of authors don't do that is they don't have time. Like it took me 18 months to put that book together full time. Like I was only doing that book. I got off the road. I wasn't speaking. And so again, that was a pretty big commitment. That's a huge opportunity cost because the revenue you're generating as a speaker and to suddenly put that, park that aside for another book. It must have been a tough decision to make. You know, it's weird. I don't care much about money. I'm not a money-oriented person. It's kind of funny I'm the wealthy barber. <laughs> like, I really don't care very much about that kind of thing. In fact, even my own investments, I don't pay that much attention to them, truthfully. I tend to get distracted and pay attention to other things. But yeah, the opportunity cost was fairly severe. So I'm glad the book did well, because obviously you want it to be as impactful as it possibly can. And as you pointed out, I'd been doing other things before that. Even then, I'd walked away from the speaking at times because of the cookbooks I got involved in publishing. And that was a fun experience, too. So I've been very lucky. A lot of things have fallen into my life. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say we should all be positive because everything's fallen my way. You know, I grew up in Canada, great country, and I think there is white privilege, male privilege to some extent. But you know the biggest privilege in the world? Great parent privilege. I had two of the finest parents you could ever have. And they've been incredibly important in my life, but also the lives of my kids. You know, they've taught them so much about integrity and handling themselves well, et cetera. And my father's still alive and well. And my kids are now returning the favor. It's amazing how involved they are in his life, supporting him whenever he has needs. Has anybody seen the videos with David and his dad? Like his dad just steals every scene. I wouldn't have him in videos. I mean, I'm too much of a narcissist. This guy is, he plays you like a fiddle. When we return, David Chilton moves from author to one of the most popular dragons ever on the show Dragon's Den. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royaltrust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. David Chilton's not your typical dragon. You might know that from reading The Wealthy Barber, his book of frugal financial advice he wrote and published when he was only 25 years old. If a new dragon comes in, it's a whole new ballgame. Changes the whole dynamic, and that certainly happened this year. I was intimidated the first day. I mean, they're all experienced, obviously, and they know what kinds of questions to ask, and they have good chemistry with each other, but they've been very fair. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is David Chilton. David Chilton wrote two of the best-selling books in Canada, The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns. A bestseller in Canada sells in the thousands. Chilton's books have sold over five million. I want to ask about your the business acumen of publishing because you self-published. I did. Which is unheard of to have a bestseller. And then you, you got busy and you turned it over to a publishing company, but then you bought your rights back. So yeah, take so us through a little bit of that roller coaster. I, I self-published and there was, a, again, a, a kind of a false impression in the marketplace. I did that because I couldn't get it published. It's not, it wasn't that. I only took it to one publisher, Fitzhenry and Whiteside, and they said yes. I self-published because I'm very controlling 
And I also felt that the corporate sales arena would be strong and that most publishers aren't very good at that. So I launched it on my own and then when it took off, I couldn't keep up. So Stoddard Publishing came in and took over the retail sales. I handled the corporate sales and eventually they ran into some financial troubles, ended up buying it back. And then I ended up becoming very much immersed in the publishing field through all that. And I ended up publishing cookbooks, as a lot of you know, the Looney Spoons, Crazy Plates, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, Yum and Yummer, and all the cookbooks from Janet and Greta Podleski. And that was a fantastic experience for me because it let me apply my publishing knowledge, but I could stay home. I didn't have to go out on the road and do all the interviews and all the speeches. Jan and Greta were out there doing it. Plus, they're as lovely a twosome as you could ever deal with. And the books did tremendously well. That was a very lucky thing to have fallen into my life. I'm going to spin back to something you said a little earlier when you talked about it frustrated me that all the people I'd send these books about financial planning, they wouldn't read it. Why is it that as humans, we have a picture of our life, we have a picture of our retirement, but we very rarely plan for it? Why is the disconnect between connecting the dots to our dreams versus just dreaming and... I think it's tough in our minds to create a sense of urgency, you know, for something that's 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you're distracted, you're very focused on today's needs, but also let's be honest, it's so easy to gain access to capital in the last 10 to 20 years through multiple credit cards, through lines of credit, through very cheap interest rates, et cetera, and people have given into that temptation. And they think I'll buy this now and I'll pay it off over time and then I'll do my planning later in life. And I think it's human nature to some extent. And so what I'm trying to do, especially with the second book, is, is come at it from a perspective that maybe rewires people a little bit and makes them think a little bit differently about it. But I think we're all, you know, guilty of a lot of that, whether it's our health. We tend to be, you know, distracted there too and not eat as healthfully as we can, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm not great for eating. And so we all have our weaknesses on that front. And that's why we need books like The Wealthy Barber and all the other ones out there. Now, of course, there's so many great financial podcasts. There's no shortage of great financial information. I mean, if we're worried about financial literacy, there's ways to get at it. There's a lot of excellent teachers out there with strong communication skills. It's just getting people to apply what's being taught. That's the real hard part. You know, we both share RBC as a partner and they, they've done some great stuff with financial literacy with McGill and agriculture with, with Guelph, entrepreneurship with the Morissette School. And I wonder, I, I keep asking why, with all of that out there, curating that, is it just, just too much information and therefore you need somebody, a brand you trust to go, this is the skill set that you need? The curation from a trusted source is absolutely crucial. One of the questions I get asked most often is, Dave, if you could recommend three books, what would they be? Or of all the financial podcasts, if I were only going to listen to two, which ones would you listen to? Because people don't want to filter through the 500 options that are out there. And I get that. And I, we answer that question. And I should do more of that because I think you're right. It's so much now. It's overwhelming. People only have so much time. You are fighting human nature. There's so many things pulling at us at all times. I mean, life really does get in the way, as corny as that expression sounds. And everybody in here, most, how many people have in here have had kids, have kids? Okay, that was a huge mistake financially. You should not have done that. But <coughs> recognizing that you did do that, I mean, you know what it's like raising kids. It's You don't have much time to think about these things. You're not going to be sitting around analyzing your finances and doing a lot of those things. It's busy. It's busy. You're in Toronto, for heaven's sakes, in this case, traffic alone, getting the kids all over the place, if they're involved in sports, if they're involved in activities. It's very time consuming. So it's not easy to do. The good news is, on the financial planning front, the successful strategies are actually very straightforward. The really tricky stuff doesn't work. And so you don't need to become a specialist in complex option strategies. They're money losers. 
The good things like paying off your non-deductible debt, staying away from credit cards, maximizing your RSPs and TFSAs, those types of things are easily grasped, but not necessarily easily done because again, you have to pull money from something else. So the dragon's den comes along knocking at your door. I mean, you're a very successful speaker. You're starting to do a lot of TV interviews. I loved your Stromo interview. Um, what was that like to suddenly become part of an ensemble cast? Because for a control freak, you can, you own the microphone. This was your stage. And now you got to share it with some people. And some of them aren't necessarily generous with their time. Yeah, yeah I know who you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I actually had an opportunity to go on at the end of the first year and mm -hmm. I turned it down. I was distracted and doing other things. And then when it came the second time, I decided to, to do it. Initially, by the way, I said no that time too. And then a lot of you know Amanda Lang. And she was working with the CBC at that point, and she called me and said, I, I heard they want you to do Dragon's Den. You should try it. You're not a young man. I thought that was kind of an insulting way to put it, but I thought, you know, I get her point, which is try something new and see if you like it. I said, I'll do it for a year. Ended up doing it for three. If you actually close a lot of deals, it's incredibly busy. Remember, most of these entrepreneurs are just starting out. They're inexperienced. They don't have a big team. You end up serving as a quasi CFO in many instances, making introductions, helping them literally daily. So if you close a lot of deals, it can be a little overwhelming, but a great experience. But you were known for closing deals where a lot of it, the rest of it was kind of television. A little sleight of hand. Yeah, I'm going to do this deal. Let me paper this out, but we know who we're talking about. And you, on the other hand, became this mentor and Yoda to a lot of young entrepreneurs. I know a couple of them and they, yeah, you, they, they, they we talked about earlier and they said you're, you were, invaluable more than a CFO. You're like a, a, a surrogate father. Like you help them make their dreams come to life. That must've been incredibly rewarding. It was really rewarding. And then we did all our own due diligence on the deals. We didn't subcontract it to the accounting firms or anything else. That was a lot of fun too. And met so many nice people. I mean, it, it, the Dragon's Den experience was a lot of fun. I'll tell you a cute story. When they first called me, the, the CBC lawyer called and they're going through a lot of things. And right at the end of the call, he says, what hotel do you want to stay in? And you have to pick from among the followings because the other dragons have already taken these four. And I said, why can't I stay in the same hotel as the other dragons? And he says, oh, by the end of the day, you hate each other and you don't want to walk back to the hotel together. And I thought, that's ridiculous. It's so true. <laughs> like, it is so true. At the end of the day, you really don't even want to see each other. And there were so many interesting things about Dragon's Den. I don't know if you knew this, but we in the old days, less so now, but they used to tape the entire season in 20 straight days. So we would move to Toronto and the entire season would be taped in 20 days. We wouldn't see our families. You'd be completely cut off from the world. I kind of liked it. I thought it was nice to get into a vacuum and get away from everything for the 20 days. But you can imagine how tired you get of each other. You're eating all your meals together. You show up at five in the morning to eat breakfast and get your makeup on. You go until seven at night and then you tend to go to a charity event together at night. But an interesting thing about it is because they put it together, they tape all the segments. They don't know the order yet. And therefore, we have to wear the same clothes every day. And so every day you're in the same outfits. But what's fascinating to me is how sexist society still is. Because you know the general public never notices that the men have the same clothes on. They only notice Arlene does. And that's interesting, isn't it? And so I'd be at the airports and people come up to me and say, oh, I love dragons. Then, hey, can I ask you a question? Why does Arlene always wear the same outfit? And I would say, I don't know. 
Way to, co- yeah, way to cover her back there. It's very cheap. I don't know what she's thinking. <laughs> but I, I thought that was very, very interesting how they did that. And also when you watch the show, somebody made this point earlier tonight before we went on. You can see trends. Like in 2011, 12, 13, we got pitched all the time for microbreweries. I think the show has done a lot of good things. And I say that because when you go to a university or college campus and you speak to business students, unbelievable how many say, I went into business and I want to become an entrepreneur because I grew up watching Dragon's Den. What do you look for in an entrepreneur? Because, I mean, you know, there's, there's the idea, but there's also the, the talent behind it. What advice would you give to somebody pitching you if you were a mini dragon now? Do they have the grit? Because inevitably things are going to go very poorly. I was talking to a serial entrepreneur tonight, one of the fellows in the audience has started 17 businesses and he will, I guarantee you, agree with me. They never go as planned. They're up, they're down, they're all around. You have to be creative, but you have to have stick and grit. Is this person going to stick with it? Is this person going to fight through the tough times, et cetera? I also gravitated towards people I liked. You're trying to get a good feel for their character. Are they going to be honest? Are they going to be people you're proud to be associated with? And in fact, in due diligence, we really focused on that a lot. And that formula seemed to work pretty well for us. And, you know, even maybe the most famous of the Dragon's Den pitches was the lady who had the bird, Mary, who had the bird that tore up the pieces of paper and then she turned them into greeting cards. And I invested, I think, $25,000 in that. And everybody said that had to be the worst investment ever. Well, we ended up selling the greeting cards to Hallmark and they sold out coast to coast. And I knew that she was going to do well because she was one of the most sincere, authentic people I've ever met. And she had stick to itiveness just to get off this. But I, a very funny story on this particular one. We went to do due diligence. She sends me nothing, no accounting, nothing. So my assistant calls her and says, we're going to have to have something here. We get a box and all the box has in it is a photo album going through her entire life in pictures, everything except 1981. There's no pictures. It's blank. And I phoned her and I said, first off, what happened in 81? She goes, well, I got involved in some bad stuff that year and I don't really remember it too well. I said, okay. I said, I'm a little confused. Why did you, why did you send me this? And she goes, well, that's your due diligence. And I said, I need your accounting, et cetera. She goes, no, no, I, I don't have any of that. She goes, but I know you and you invest in people you believe in. And I thought if you saw what I've been through in my life and all the things I've been involved with, you'd want to be a part of this. And I thought, you know what? Good for her. I flew out to Vancouver with my kids to do a Dragon's Den update. And we went to Mary's house and I wrote her the check. You know, Dragons then loves to catch on camera when you write the check. I gave her the check and she and I are talking and the bird swoops down, takes my check and shreds it. He is very good at what he does. Okay, he really is. And so that was a delightful experience. In fact, Dragons then for me is something that was almost all positive. We give him a hard time, no mentoring. You gotta get on your own right away. It's much more competitive than I thought it would be. It really is. I mean, I think one thing the viewers would love about the show, the more they knew, is that it's not staged at all. Guys, why do you need Kevin to do that? Just go see the luggage manufacturers without him. You can figure that out, you're too smart guys. You figured out the bag, he didn't. There's no scripting, you don't know anything about the pictures. The arguments you see are very genuine. There've been a couple deals I haven't got that I've been actually very upset didn't come my way. So it is very competitive. Sometimes you look to cooperate because they think if you don't, you're going to lose a deal. I'm willing to compete and drive your price down. Or we can collude. What do you want to do? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. David Chilton's my guest. He wrote The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns, successful venture capitalist, entrepreneur, sought-after speaker, and one of the most popular dragons on the hit show Dragon's Den. 
must have been also tough to leave it because it redefined you from just being, for sure, uh, you know, this successful author and speaker to this mentor, to this, you know, as you're getting older, this guide. And I think mentorship is something that's so important in our society. I want to talk about that in terms of the power of perspective, because I really enjoyed, I mean, I binge watched you for this thing and, and, you know, saw a lot of great transitions in your life. But this power of perspective is where you're really talking about things that are good in our life. Why don't you share a little bit of that with our audience? Well, you know, I've argued for years that although we have a lot of people going through tough times, a tremendous number of Canadians are very lucky. And we lose sight of that easily. In fact, I would say that if you said, what is Canada's national pastime? A lot of people would say it's hockey. I would argue it's complaining. And that everywhere you go, people are complaining. And for the most part about relatively trivial things, long lineup of Tim's Tim Horton's traffic, which I complained about earlier today, to be open and honest. And I just try to remind people a lot on stage that our lives are very good relative to other countries' lives, relative to other types of history. We are very spoiled indeed. And almost everything you look at from the quality of the products we have, like TVs, cars, et cetera, to the quality of our homes. I mean, people forget, like I'm fairly old now, I'm 60. But when you go back to when I was 10, 50 years ago, do you remember what windows were like? Like, I mean, the breeze came right through the window. People forget all that. Most people didn't have air conditioning for heaven's sakes. You know, people had trouble heating their homes. We lived great lives. You remember what cars were like when we were young? I mean, if you're my age, cars broke down all the time. You had a flat tire all the time. Tires now, they pump themselves up somehow. And we take all this for granted. I mean, a lot of people in here, in your car, you have a heated steering wheel. Put your hand up if you have a heated steering wheel. You should be ashamed, you're Canadians, okay? But then people still complain. But again, you look around the rest of the world, and I think we talked about my mother and father a lot. They've always been great in the perspective part. They've recognized that we're very lucky, and they have a lot of gratitude. And I think more than anything else, the research says that gratitude links to happiness. People who are grateful, people who realize how fortunate they are, tend to, by nature, be happier. Now, it's tough to figure out cause and effect, which comes first. They probably play off each other. But I think perspective is a missing ingredient in a lot of people's lives. And I'm very much aware that I've had everything fall my way. You know, where I've lived, the parents I've had, and I'm thankful for it every day. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm always in a good mood. And I am always in a good mood. It's a bit weird, but I'm always in a good mood. I actually want to take advantage of you on stage. And this is shameless. And I'm sorry, RBC, because I'm getting free advice on your dime. But Wills, I I want your advice on this. I mean, I'm divorced. I got remarried. And I just became a grandfather for the first time. should the will be as fluid as I am? Should I be? Should that will be moving at the speed of my life, or is well, that just something I just throw in a? My best financial advice is don't get divorced again. Okay, that's my my best. Advice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's thank you for that. It's thank interesting you. you bring up the wills because I think that most people don't do a good job in that front. I mean, a lot of Canadians don't have wills, as you know. A lot of celebrities don't have wills. But let's say you're done the right thing and you do have a will. I always tell my friends, make sure you read it at least once every two years, if not more frequently, to update it because things change in life. I mean, I went back and read my own will 12 months ago. I made two changes to the will. I drifted apart from one of the charities I was leaving money to and instead I left it to another, et cetera. And I think we would all benefit from doing that. It doesn't take very long. So yeah, your, your will is a living instrument and you definitely want to take a look at it on occasion. And for heaven's sakes, have a will. Like, are you kidding? It's unbelievable how many people think I'll take care of it later, but then something pops up, an accident obviously being the most extreme example, and they never get to it. What was that funny part of the video with your dad and talking about execu- executor of the will? He said, 
what was he saying? Like, how did it work out that you guys both agreed that you both would be the worst executors of each other's will or something? What happened? Yeah, that? I mean, we. I'm not a big believer in in uh, appointing an individual as an executor to a will. Like, I don't uh, appoint my kids. I use a corporate executor. I use Royal Trust, and so does my dad. And I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, I think that I don't uh, trust my father to stay on top of this type of thing. Like, he'll just give all the money away. Like, that's a fact, by the way. But also, he doesn't have those skills. That's not his thing. I mean, he's not got a good financial mind. I don't want him choosing the investments and selling them off and paying attention to those details. But there's a bigger reason that when people die, the oftentimes we pass off that huge role of being the executor to somebody who's going through the grieving process. And what a bad time to be have to taking on all those duties. And those duties are quite extreme. There's a huge amount of responsibility that falls on their shoulders. But beyond that, the family friction that results from all of this is huge. And in fact, since we've come up with the videos, it's amazing how many stories have come forth where people have said, oh my gosh, Dave, you think that's bad? The example you gave in the video, listen to this one. We see it over and over and over And it's again. not just the family cottage. I mean, it's grandma's tea set. It's everything, it's, right? It, it's everything. Like it yeah. really is quite sad how many people have distant relationships now with brothers and cousins and sisters yeah. because of all of this. And so I've just decided to take that risk off the table. I don't think it's that expensive to appoint a corporate executor. And that's the route that I've gone. And so how about you though? You're the kind of like the LeBron James in financial planning. How do you have conversations with your, with your, your son and daughter about stuff like this? Because I got to believe, you know, it, 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 is it easy for you? Because those conversations don't, aren't, don't come easy, right? They don't, and they're, and they're boring. Yeah. Let's be perfectly honest. And I think we can all push them off because again, there's no urgency needed. You don't think you're going to die imminently. But I've had the conversations with my kids. My kids are interesting. My son is a fascinating guy. He doesn't want anything. Like he'd almost rather you don't leave him anything. He's never asked for anything. He's very independent on those fronts. And my, my daughter's only only too happy to take it all and not leave <laughs> my son anything. And she's made that very clear that she agrees with Scott that he should get nothing. But I've walked them through, for example, one of the things, first things I ever spoke about in the videos is where is your will? I mean, you want to make sure that people know where it is. Then you want to have a list of the assets yeah. with the will and where they can be located and so on and so forth. But you have to have these conversations because if you don't have them, things can get very ugly after the fact when people are trying to resolve all this without your guiding light being there. So, I mean, it's not fun stuff, but you definitely want to have the talk. Because you're dealing with mortality and no kid wants to ever think their parents are that age. So it, it yeah. is. I, Actually, so, I know a fair number of kids who be happy to think of their parents as near death. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with you yeah, on that. Yeah. Uh, the last question, because I, th I, you know, it's late at night and I'm fascinated about this positive energy, this, you know, you're going back on tour, this unbridled enthusiasm for this country. I, I, what's next? Is there another new tightrope? Is there another book coming? Is there something? I know you're, you've spent a lot of your summer playing great golf, but what's, what's going to get you out of bed with the same skip and shiny eyes and beating heart that you've had since you were a kid writing The Wealthy Barber? Well, I, I definitely think I'll start another business. You know, I might do something with my kids. They'd like to start something and they're both very talented that way. And Any, any interest in podcasts? Yeah, we're all entrepreneurs. Nobody yeah. will hire children. We yeah. all work for ourselves. Yeah. So that's, we'll maybe come together. I'm, I'm taping relatively soon a speech that we're hoping to turn into a TV special with Netflix or maybe CBC. And it's about a lot of these types of things, but wrapped in humor. And I think you would enjoy it. And I'm not sure, you know, I've got a lot of other ideas too. I've always wanted to write a play. And I have a lot of ideas on the play front, and I think I'm better to get at sooner than later, so I can see me doing that. What Do you I want to pitch see, it to this audience? Well, I don't think I'll pitch it to you right now, no, but okay. uh, the one thing I don't see me doing is a lot of touring. 
I think, you know, for 30 years I was out on the road and then COVID hit and I don't miss going to the airports every day. Yeah. Parts of that are really liked. Being on stage at night, I like, but getting there, you know, I'm older now and I get a little depressed about how fast time is going. You know, that's the one thing that can knock me backwards a bit. I can't believe how old I am and how quickly it's all gone. I've loved my life. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're 60 and you feel, holy smokes, how much uh, do I have left in terms of healthy years? And uh, so I'm not sure what's next, but there'll be a lot. Like, I'm not going to just relax. That's not my style. So I always wrap my show up with the three things that I take away uh, and that I hope maybe the audience has, or sometimes they write and tell me other things. But first of all, you're just, you are a wonderful human being. And I love the fact that your humility and the gratitude and I'm the luckiest guy and I'm the luckiest guy. You're self-made for a reason because you work hard. But I, I really respect people that have the humility to to just say it's just being part of a great country and a great community and great people. I love the part where you said, you know, when you're talking about, you know, male privilege, white privilege, you said, you know, the most the best privilege I had is great parent privilege. And I know your mom's not with you, but if she's looking down, she'd be very proud to say that. And I know your dad, who doesn't credit you with much, really thinks the world of you on it. And I guess the, the third thing is just how pragmatic you are with advice and how important that is for us, because you're right, we tend to do things that they're all urgent, as Steve Covey said, and never important. But just some of the simple things that you've put out, including something, a lesson that I followed since I first read it, which was pay yourself first. Yep. And I had my first GIC, I think it paid me 18% interest. Because <laughs> Back the, 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 1979. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and I, I it, it, you know, so much of it has to do with a lot of what you've taught. And I have to be, believe there's a lot of people in this room and a lot of people walking around that are wealthy, wealthier intellectually, emotionally, and financially because of this man, David Chilton. So Thank give you. it up for him. I think the, uh, really the, the only big take home today is no more kids, no more divorces. Okay, that's really the big message I want to drive. Oh no, Tony, I, I really enjoyed it and you're, you're great at what you do and you and I crossed paths many times and it was so nice of you people to come out tonight yeah. and I had a great opportunity to meet a lot of you ahead of time and I appreciate the kind comments about the books and it's nice to sign the books. I did have somebody come up and point out that there was a spelling mistake in one of the books and so I will be going back to my sister and getting that 10% back. I can assure you as soon as I leave here. Thanks again. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed chatting with David Chilton in front of a live audience and I thank RBC Royal Trust for making this happen. Dave's a great guy. I doubt I would have his humility or grace if I had accomplished all he has. Five million books sold, dragon of the dragon's den, successful entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and speaker. And thankfully, I took a lot of what he had to say to heart in terms of how I managed my money. But what stood out for me today is my will. I have one, but now I'm questioning, is it relevant? Is it tax efficient? Is it still fresh? I also learned that your executor shouldn't be a friend or someone from your family. You need a professional, one who's objective and biased, and who will respect your wishes. So thank you, David, for reinforcing the great perk of my job, to meet and interview wonderful people, to learn about their journey through life, and to realize that positivity and possibility are the best way forward. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.